This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 114. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 114 you're listening to. It is brought to you by our friends over at GearSluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Lawton Audio. Back again, here we are, show number 114. My guest today, Monty Vallier, who is a producer, engineer, mixer in San Francisco. Monty is a former member of uh, the band Swell. If you're from the Bay Area, you would remember the band Swell. He was the bass player. He made about five albums and toured extensively in the 90s with him, and uh they were signed to Rick Rubin's uh, Deaf American label in 1993, yeah. He kind of straddles the world of audio for companies like, uh, and we're talking when I say audio, music, as well as voiceovers for companies like Hewlett-Packard and Adobe. He has partnered w- with uh, a gentleman by the name of Mark Capel, and they've been doing corporate music stuff since around 2000. He's worked with Tommy Guerrero, he's worked with Mark Eitzel, Oxbow, Jet Black, Houses of Heaven, Never Young, just a, a huge array of bands that... Some of you may have heard of, some of you may not have heard of. Yeah, so Monty Vallier coming up. And I met Monty, originally we met at the 100th show party for Working Class Audio. And then like two weeks later, I was going to interview Nathan Harlow for the show and ran into Monty. And I'm such such a doofus. I like saw him and was like, hey, so you look familiar. And he goes, yeah, we just talked like two weeks ago at your party. And I was like, oh my God, facepalm. So uh Anyways, I said, well, you know, uh, show me around the studio. We talked a bit. I said, well, why don't you be on the show and let's let's have a, a proper chat. And then, of course, I went and uh, interviewed Nathan, and then we orchestrated this interview today. So, yeah, excited for Monty to come on. So um, I have a treat for you. My friend, Lyd Shaw, who's been on the show, she's been on uh, WCA number 90, and who runs the podcast recording studio Rockstars, he reached out to me to let me know that he's doing a, a webinar, a mixed webinar, a two-day webinar. And he said, hey, I got a discount code for your listeners if they're interested. And I said, absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll tell them about it and I'll put a link on the website. So what he's doing is he's joining up with uh, Josh Harris, who's a producer, mixer, and an educator. And Josh has worked with people like Seal and Madonna and the Killers and James Murphy of LCD Sound System. So Josh and uh, Lidge are going to do this thing called Rockstars of Mixing. Very appropriate considering, you know, recording studio rockstars and all that. And what it is, it's actually a live mix coach webinar. It's a two-day event and it takes place. And this is kind of timely. So if you're listening to this podcast now and it's a Monday, Monday, it would, this show comes out Monday, February 20th. And their webinar happens on Friday and Saturday, February 24th and 25th. This is in 2017, so if you're listening and it's 2018, this is outdated information. But they're doing this event from uh, Lidge's studio called the Toy Box Studio. It's in Nashville. And the first day, they're going to do reviews of mixes for two to three hours on the Friday night, uh, what they're calling the Mix Meetup. And you will have an opportunity to submit a mix of yours for evaluation if you'd like. And on the second day, 
they're going to do an advanced mixing clinic and full Q&A session. So what we've arranged is his tickets, uh, they're selling them for $67, but he's given me a code to give you all who listen to Working Class Audio that will give you 25% off. And that code is WCA25. And the link is on the Working Class Audio site. So if anything, if at the end of today's podcast, you listen to the show and you think, oh, right, I want to go do that Rockstars of Mixing thing, just go to the workingclassaudio.com site. Click on the link, use the code WCA25. That'll get you in. That'll get you a break. And uh, yeah, so if you're, you know, a beginner and you want to check this out, this would be good for you. Uh, if you're a pro and you want to, you know, as I always encourage, have an open mindset and see if you're going to learn something. It's kind of a low cost way to, you know, get in and uh, see what these guys are up to. I think, it, uh, think it's going to be good. So that's it. So yeah, make sure you check that out. Rock stars of mixing with my buddy Lid Shaw and Josh Harris. So, so that's it for today. Let's. Uh, I want to just jump right on into our interview here with Monty Valier. So let's do it, Monty Valier here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Monty. Thank you. I, I feel like such a dork because you know we met at the hundredth WCA party, and then I saw you like what two weeks later. I'm like, you look familiar. Like, yeah, duh. <laughs> I just saw this guy at this party. What I didn't realize, even though you probably mentioned it, I'm I'm going to almost guarantee that you've mentioned it, and I just it just right over my head. But it, I was reminded you sent me a link this morning, and I didn't realize you were in swell. Oh yeah. While musically I am not well versed in Swell, I do remember the band as a band in the Bay Area. Yeah. And I read the Wikipedia page and read the interview about pioneering the lo-fi sound without really knowing it. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk on that from the 10,000 foot view of the lo-fi sound of the of the 90s. Yeah, well, it was purely accidental, you know, because no one really starts out, well, back then especially, no one started out trying to be lo-fi, you know? It was just a, a symptom of, or the circumstance of, of having cheap old gear, you know, and not having a lot of it. And so uh, my partner in Swell, David Friel, he had a, a Tascam 38 and maybe three 57s and, you know, an old Tascam uh, little mixer that had spring reverb built in kind of thing and, and, and I, I don't mean to interrupt but i just want to clarify the tascam 38 is is the big tascam that looks like it's got the enclosed reel to reel no that's is the that 388 right? the 388 okay yeah the 38 is just the half inch reel to reel eight track okay. um but yeah that's all we had and so you know, we'd throw up, you know, two 57s as overheads and a 57 in between the kick and the snare and record the drums and uh, mix them down to two tracks and, you know, just add everything else. And that was, you know, we were trying to do hi-fi recordings. <laughs> we weren't trying to do lo-fi stuff, but it just turned out that way. And, and the records got popular and a lot of other people were kind of getting into self-recording and releasing stuff right around then, late 80s, early 90s. And that's that's kind of how we became known as the Godfathers of Lo-Fi, just because we were like one of the first ones to have a popular record, I guess, that sounded like that. Sebado mm -hmm. was kind of doing it, you know. Yeah. Releasing four did, tracks, GBV. I mean, did you, were you like puzzled? Were you like, what? Lo-Fi? What? Or did you seize on the on the on the marketing of it? 
No, we definitely did not seize on the marketing of it. We we were trying really hard to learn and and to make hi-fi recordings with the gear that we had. So it was purely accidental. Were you offended at the the label of being labeled lo-fi? Well, it, it's like the label didn't really exist yet, but eventually, yeah, it was like, wait, these records have a unique sound. They're not, you know, like nowadays, lo-fi, I, I get uh, requests all the time to make lo-fi records and you just fuck them up. You know, you just like distort everything, reamp everything, mix down onto cassette or something and try to make something sound lo-fi. But back then it was, it didn't exist. It was just like, that's the best we could do, you know? So right. It wasn't right. really offensive. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and here you were like putting serious effort into really just trying to do your best with what you had. And then lo and behold, you come up with this sound and everybody's like, oh yeah, it's the new thing. Yeah, exactly. That's how it was. (laughs) Do you still own that Tascam 38 by chance? I don't, but I think that David Friel might still Mm. own it. I don't know. It's probably in a closet somewhere. I wish I had it. We have a a, a newer half inch eight track in our upstairs studio now, Mm -hmm. but I have a one inch 16. And so that's kind of close. It's like, two half inch eights <laughs> stacked <laughs> yeah you have a great space over there and for the listener when i went to go interview nathan harlow it was at you know this building that monty is in now can you tell me a little bit about where you're at now and about the particulars of your your building your space your studio all that we're at the corner of 16th street and harrison in san francisco in an old building built on the creek uh, right next to the Muni yard, the big Muni repair building. Um, we have, I don't know, about 2,000 square feet, have a live room, have a little cubic uh, control room. I've done a lot of work in to make it sound not like a cube. We have a, a writing and, and mixing and, and editing suite where you interviewed Nathan mm-hmm. upstairs. He's got another little Trident console that kind of matches my ADC here. Um, and we have another two rooms downstairs that Tommy Guerrero rents, and he's got a little studio in there with a with a Tascam 388 that he records all his records on. We've been here since 1995. A partner of mine used to live here, and then we eventually started turning into a studio slowly by just doing some production in here. And eventually he moved out and turned it into a full-time production place. And I took over the lease maybe in 2007. Mm. So it's been a long time we've been in this space. Since the 90s, what's the relationship like with the landlord? Our landlord's great. He lets us do whatever we want in here because he feels like we're improving the space all the time. So he, we don't even have to ask if we want to put in a new wood floor or anything. He's very cool. And because my partner had been here since 95, the rent's pretty reasonable. I mean, we've had to renegotiate every you know five years or so or a new lease. And it's still very affordable for San Francisco. It is probably, I think, probably one of the best <laughs> rents you can get around here these days. But but it's uh, it's solid. Um, I think I have seven or eight more years left on my lease. And yeah, it's a good spot. Are you the only one using the studio? At this point, I really am. Nathan uses the studio upstairs. Um, mm-hmm. And occasionally he'll track in here. And my other partner, he probably does a project maybe once every four or five months, six months, where he's tracking in here and, and mixing. So it's mostly me. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like uh, my client base is a lot of young 
new bands. I've done a lot of records with a lot of post-punk and shoegaze and noisy bands from all over the Bay Area and, and internationally. But my client base is, is, it's like people who are making their first or second album, usually, unless it's mm -hmm. somebody I've worked with before, like a, a band like Wax Idols. I've produced all their recordings and we're working on the fourth album now. Usually, if if I make a record with somebody and they have a good time, they usually come back. I mean, that's always a, a good thing. And it's fun to watch these artists learn how to use the studio. You know, I, I kind of enjoy being that person that, you know, holds their hand and teaches them how to make a record. Because it, yeah. it, it takes a lot of experience to learn how to make a record from an artist's standpoint. So it's cool to, to watch, like, a young band's first album and, and they have all these really high expectations and, and their vision for how their record should be or is going to be always exceeds their talent level, you know? <laughs> and, and that's always, it's always fun to watch. And then, and then after about their, you know, second or third time in the studio, they start to realize, oh, this is how it works. You know, this is how hard it is. This is how to use our time properly. This is, you know, the extent of our talent, you know, we can't go beyond this. This is what we do and this is how we are. And let's just well, make the best record we can. By the time they learn that lesson, isn't it too late? I mean, aren't they at the end of the record and blown the budget? Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I really try to, to help people before they get to that point, you know, try not to let them blow their whole budget, you know, doing something that isn't going to work. I always find that frustrating when with your experience or my experience where we know what's involved and and I always just take it for granted I always think well everybody knows what's involved so when I get together with somebody who doesn't that's always alarming it's it's and it's like oh wait a minute okay I have to have patience and I have to slow down and I have to explain it to them yeah. which really uh, that conversation should be happening before the record is made obviously to gauge their experience yeah. um is uh, is the studio and your production work uh your only source of income or are you uh diversifying in other directions well i've always been um doing commercial and corporate stuff this whole time i i pretty much after swell decided to go full-time into producing mm -hmm. at that time i met a composer named mark capel and we started doing probably in 99 or 2000, we started doing uh, music for ads and corporate stuff. And I started doing all the music and, and all the sound design for companies like Adobe and Hewlett Packard and, you know, Genentech. We had these clients that were uh, like producer, in-house producers at these big companies and some agencies. And they would come to us to do voiceover and to, of course, compose uh, any of the original score that they needed, do any music supervision. And I would do all the sound design and I would do the post-production stuff, the sound editing, the um, music editing, the dialogue editing, and all the um, mixing, the final mixing. And so that's always been kind of my other half. So when years are good doing the corporate stuff, then I can take on a lot more young bands that have no budget and make really cool records for fun you know, instead of pending on it for uh, income. I'd love to dive a little deeper into the discussion of doing the corporate work for those that are curious how that works financially, logistically. How sure. does one get involved in work like that? I was lucky because Mark Capel had already 
built a reel as a composer. And so we were able to go and take meetings with producers and offer our services. And we, we came as kind of a package deal. You know, we do the composition and all the rest of the audio department kind of work. And so in the end, they would get a final thing. You know, they'd get the mix, they would get stems, they would get everything they needed for broadcast or whatever without having to go to another post house. Hmm. And so we could do it way cheaper than the big post houses. So that's kind of how we got in. How did you know what the other post houses were charging? Uh, the producers would tell us, you know. Oh. <laughs> They'd be like, well, that would cost us $2,000. You say you can do it for $600? i would be like, yes, I can do that for $600. You know, the big post houses are very expensive, especially 15 years ago. Oh, know? yeah. I think they've come down a lot because most of them had gone out of business by now. You know, there's a couple left. There's like uh, one, what's, what's one? Uh, one studio, union. One, one union, yeah. And uh, Outpost. Um, yeah. There's just a few left. I can't even name them all. Interesting. So uh, you take these meetings, they would say, well, that would cost this much normally, or, or, or how would that conversation come up? Would you say, well, tell us what, what you'd been, you're, you have been charged in the past? Sometimes we could get that kind of information, but mostly we, we just figured out what our service was worth and we would just throw it out there. And generally we could beat their price without even knowing their price, you know, yeah. because we're two guys and I'm using my studio, you know, I, I could charge a little bit of, of studio rate and then just like a day rate for us, you know, as a package. And mm. we were really fast too. So I think I've worked once, maybe on one project in the past, because I know Mark Capel's name and I think, does he play trumpet at all? Yes. He's a horn okay, player, I think he, keyboardist. He, he, he probably played trumpet on a project that I was engineering at some point. He definitely did. He's, <laughs> he might take offense to this, but I, I, kind of call him the Paul Schaefer of the indie music scene in San Francisco. He plays with everyone. He's, he knows every song, you know, he, he's, uh, you know, you find him everywhere. Yeah. On stage. Man of many talents. A absolutely. This work, corporate work. And so let's say you get one client, let's say you get Hewlett Packard. Yeah. Would you just like call the, what departments are those categorized under? Usually marketing department. Okay. Usually there's producers who are producing content in the marketing department. And a lot of times big companies will be doing a lot of in-house stuff. And that's kind of how you get in. Um, it's really hard to get the TV commercials and all that because that's usually going through an agency. But if you're doing in-house stuff with, with a big corporation like that, you're just in the marketing department. And they're creating like instructional videos and content for... Um, conventions and other types of computer shows or, or whatever, like NAM, those kind of things, or kiosks. So we've done a lot of in-house corporate stuff. Like we used to do all of it for, for Adobe, you know, it was fun. So that kind of work definitely can sustain, uh, you know, a couple, couple talented guys like you and Mark, I would assume. It did. It did. Um, things really slowed down uh, 2008 and then things started coming back a little bit. But I think I was telling you this when you were over here with Nathan, that since the election, things have just dried up. <laughs> People are scared. They're not spending money. Not, they're not sure where to put their, their marketing budgets. Exactly. Or else they're, they're just holding on to them really tight until the, the uncertainty kind of levels out. Some people who do audio work and, and like, would like to concentrate on doing nothing but bands, I think sometimes will shun that type of work or they feel that 
if they get too caught up in that type of work, then there's no, then they don't keep their name out there for those bands that they want to work with. Can you speak on that topic? Yeah, I, I think that that could be possible. But the, the the way I look at it is if you're working on cool records, that's going to go on your discography no matter what, right? People are going to see that. Um, the corporate stuff doesn't go on anything. I mean, I have a reel maybe on my websites that like has, you know, all the commercials and things like that. And it's it's two different worlds. You know, the band people don't really care about the corporate stuff. They're not really going to look at it. And the corporate people aren't really, unless you're working with, you know, the flavor of the month kind of band, they don't really notice what you're, mm -hmm. what you're doing. And the other aspect is that I've learned so much about recording from doing the corporate stuff and the film scoring. I mean, because we'd, we'd have studio musicians in here and we'd be doing 20, 25 cues in a day, you know, when we're recording a live band, playing these minute and a half long songs and switching things up and having to do things really fast. And you're basically, you're making a record. I mean, you're making really good recordings with these really great musicians. You're not just throwing the stuff away, you know? It's a big challenge. And it's no different, really, as far as the technical side of making records. And so you can learn a lot. I mean, we, we've scored a lot of films, too, and that's the same thing, where you, you, you have to make really great recordings. It's not just throwaway stuff. Intermingling the different audio worlds is always a fascinating topic to me and how, you know, an audio professional markets themselves as simple as, do you have a website with two personalities or do you have two websites, you know, with... Yeah, I uh, kind of do. I have my my uh, website, which needs to be updated like everyone's on the planet, but I have my discography and my little blog that talks about bands and things. But then I have like a, a corporate reel or a film or something like that also on that website. Mm -hmm. And so you can go to either page. And then I also have another company that only does corporate stuff. And so that's a separate website and a separate name and everything. And that has more of the, the corporate work and the commercial work showcased. Do you have family? Uh, married and uh, have a dog, um, no kids. Let's talk about work-life balance and, and spending time with your wife versus uh, trying to keep the money coming in at the studio. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, I, I kind of turned the studio into a nine to five job, basically. Mostly I work six days a week, Monday through Saturday. And I try to finish by 6 p.m. so that we and she gets off work at six. And so we can have dinner together and, and hang out. And I don't really do any audio work at home. I don't have a studio at home. I don't I don't even have a way to record anything. I don't have a microphone there. I have a record player you know? And so I, I separate it completely that way. And I don't work Sundays just because that's the d day we both have off. I, I've heard that you have the same policy. Well, it's funny, more and more as time goes along, I'm finding that even though I do have my mix mastering room here at home, which I spend an enormous amount of time during the week, I'm finding that on the weekends, not by any conscious choice, I just like don't walk in here. Yeah. And then I realize I look down the hall and I see, you know, the lights off. I'm like, wow, I haven't actually even done any audio this weekend. And it's, that's happening more and more and more. Yeah. Because I'm just trying to spend as much time doing family stuff as I can. Obviously that's, that's always a work in progress. I'm no angel, you know, sometimes I'm like, Hey, I gotta, you know, I gotta go work on something and yeah. I disappear for hours. Yeah. 
But, you know, I'll be honest with you. You know, we were talking about Mike Wells and his interview. Yeah. Which is the interview that precedes yours here, uh, number 113. I got to say, man, that interview really stuck with me from a perspective of, and, you know, I'm I'm not trying to get all deep and spiritual on you here, but, you know, really, as Mike said, you have the time you have right now. And sometimes I'm, since that interview, I've been like, you know what, I'm going to dedicate this time to these tasks and get these things done if they have a purpose. And then other than that, I'm just going to hang out with my kids and my wife. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice. Um, I had a, a health scare last year. I had I was really close to having a massive heart attack and I'm a healthy guy. You know, I work out, I eat really well, but it was hereditary and I had a a blocked artery. And uh, luckily my wife forced me to go to the emergency room because I was like, oh, I'll be okay. (laughs) And they had to do emergency angioplasty and give me a stent. And it was a, an artery that feeds blood to your heart. And they said, it's the widow maker. So basically if you have a massive heart attack there, it's fatal 90% of the time or something like that. And so I caught it just in time and I'm, I'm fine, but that experience really kind of brings home what you're saying about what Mike Wells said, that after that, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to work with anything I don't want to work with, you know, anybody, I'm not going to take on work for money. That's not something I love. I've already broken that rule a couple times, but I still have to really like the people and mm-hmm. and I have to really feel like I'm doing something that feels timeless, you know, that feels like or feels like I'm really helping somebody achieve some kind of personal goal that that they wouldn't be able to achieve without my help. But definitely not taking on anything that's just stressful, you know, that's a pain in the ass, you know, if any... <laughs> I just say no to yeah. to things because you know how it is when you're people always want you know to make a cheap record or something like that. It's like no, I'm I don't need to do that. You know, I'd rather stay home. I'd rather just you know play a guitar for a while on my own. I'd rather you know take a piano lesson. You know, do anything yeah. but work with this person. <laughs> Life's too short, right? It yeah, it really is, and I think maybe is you know, as we get older, obviously we're inevitably going to notice that younger listeners are going to be like, Oh man, I'm invincible. I'm, you know, I'm built like a tank. Um, but you know, you never know. I, my wife had a coworker that she wasn't close with, but somebody that she had, you know, seen in her office, Uh, we went out to dinner last night. She said, Oh, this so-and-so, uh, you know, dropped dead from a, um, uh, undiagnosed blood clot. And that's that. Yeah. You know, it's like one day you're there and the next day you're not. So it's good to make the best of it. And I'm sure you you would agree. It's like some of these things that we sweat and really get really all tense about. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I You can kind of relate that to making recordings. You know, it's like, are you really going to spend three hours on that floor tom sound? Does it really make the song better? Does it, is it, does it really matter at all? You know, no, it's, it's about the feel of the song and, and the way it's recorded doesn't really matter that much. Which you, know? you really, uh, I think, hinted at in your work, in your corporate work, because you got to get through, what, you know, 25, 30 cues in a day. Yeah. And you got to get the the overall bigger picture feeling and vibe and attitude yeah. down. Yeah. Not the best floor tom sound that exactly. anybody's ever heard. Yeah. There's actually a film that that went to festivals and things that we did. And we did, I think we did like 22 or 23 cues for it, which is a lot for a documentary. And I sent the rough mixes to the editor 
just so they could start slotting them in. And we ran out of time and they just used the rough mixes. Like I didn't do, I just faders up kind of mixes and that's on the film, you know? So you have to, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. You have to be really careful with what you send people, but you also have to make sure that your rough mixes sound okay. <laughs> that's funny you say that uh, because um, Cole Williams, who works with me on the show, he said, have, have you ever dropped a client or removed yourself? Like he was asking him essentially, have I fired a client? Um, and I said, yeah, yeah, there was this one guy who thought he uh, was always being ripped off from others. And so he came to the table working with me with that mindset. And this was in the days, I don't know if you remember some of these early Pro Tools rigs where I think this was on even like earliest Pro Tools rigs, where if you had a session at 48K and you bounced to disk, and you needed to convert to 44 on the old computers, it took forever. Yeah, yeah. And he would always say, what's going on? Why why is this taking so long? And I would have to explain, well, your sessions are all at 48K, and I'm trying to, you know, put them on a CD for you. And at one point, he said, I want you to make me some rough mixes just so I can listen to them. So I did. And then I didn't hear from him. And I get this panicked call, and he was like, Matt, so I went, I went out of the country to meet with these record label people and uh, the rough mixes, they weren't top quality and the record label doesn't want to put it out. And I was like, you got to be kidding me, right? You you asked me to make those for you, yeah. for your personal listening, just to take inventory of what we had. And you presented them to a record label without my knowledge. And, and here you are chewing me out for it. Yeah. Interesting. And long series of events like that with this guy eventually led to me just saying, me calling him up saying, you need to come get your hard drive. We're done. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah, that that's, that's such a, yeah. I won't release rough mixes to people a lot of times because of that. It's like, you cannot play this for anyone. This is an assembly mix. You know, it's not even a rough mix. It's just the mix that has everything in. All the overdubs are there, but nothing has been balanced. You cannot play this for anyone. It, I almost feel like compelled in those situations just to like insert pink noise in the middle of the song <laughs> with me going, this is for demonstration purposes only. <laughs> that's smart. Yeah. yeah, that's a good idea. Or, Take, you know, put your put your own message in there so the person, yeah. you know, playing it for everybody doesn't go, yeah, man, this is it. We're talking about mixing and stuff, and um, there's the the myth of good. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. people are always searching or, or struggling to find this, this mythical good. And I don't know what that is. You know, I've been mixing records for a long time, and I still don't know what good is, you know, because there's a, there's a, a standard that I find kind of boring that, you know, a pop radio standard or something like that. And is that good? I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's good. And you can't like shoehorn every single recording into this good myth. You know what I mean? Do you mm -hmm. ever run into that where, where people are just trying to make things sound the same? You know, everything sounds the same. Everybody's yeah, got the same tools. And I, I think it's difficult in that where you're trying to blend the the art and the commerce and if if a band is trying to be commercially competitive you know in some cases being super different can play to your advantage and i think that you know u2 is a complete demonstration of that because when u2 first came out i mean everybody was first of all they sounded different and then they they really were being imitated by a lot of people yeah and eventually you know I mean, nothing to me sounds like Joshua Tree. Yeah. 
that's such a uh, has a characteristic sound and of course, you have a team of people involved that make it like that and challenge the conventions. I mean, when you throw Brian Eno into any situation, he's always going to yeah. challenge you. Yeah, something cool will happen. But but I see what you're saying, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I mix rock projects, a lot yeah. of rock projects. And so to, you know, sonically be competitive in that world, drum samples are, you know, part of the deal. In fact, um, I just bought... Um, there's an engineer uh, and musician by the name of Kurt Ballou. Uh, I just bought his sample pack uh-huh. and uh, plays within the confines of the contact player. And, you know, I own Trigger from Slade and yeah. the Blackbird drum samples and all that. And that stuff for me as a drummer who's pretty critical of drum sounds within a mix, speaking of floor top sounds, <laughs> you know, just to have, you know, a lot of people can do a lot of great recording on their own. Um, but where it always lacks is the drums because getting a good uh, good space yes. with good acoustics and good mics together, that's a challenge for a lot of people. Recording guitars, that's that's a little easier in, a, yeah. in the confines of an apartment possibly, but drums, that's, that's a whole other bag. So of drum course. samples are always in my bag of tricks to help bring things up to what is that perceived value, I guess, or commercial. You mean like a, the commercial competitiveness? Yeah. level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally get that. And I, I fall into that trap sometimes with certain artists that feel like they really, you know, need to compete. You know, I've, I've mixed some stuff for super pop people and everything has to be up there or else it's not going to work or, or mixing some EDM or something. You can't do lo-fi EDM. You know, I try, <laughs> I really try, but it's just, there's like these standards that you have to meet for certain genre and, and for, you know, certain commercial aspects. But there's a lot of bands I work with where if I try to make them sound commercial or try to make them sound competitive like that, it'll just sound so wrong. They'll hate it. So I'm always trying to find this balance where I can take a band who wants to sound completely noisy, loud and blasted where, you know, reverb is, is, distorted you know and the the vocals are completely buried but i have to find this this spot between where it's got this lo-fi crazy vibe that they want but you can also still feel some of the low end and you can still feel some of the separation you know of the instruments and uh, it's a really hard thing to find um a lot of times i'll, I'll mix a, a record i'll give it to the uh, give a song to, to the band and they'll be like yeah it's really great but it's so slick, you know, it's too slick. It doesn't sound like us, you know? So then I have to kind of approach things to sound like how the band is, you know, the band, if, if they're an underground band from Oakland and they love, you know, weed, the band weed, not the, um, or, uh, rat columns or, you know, these like <laughs> kind of lo-fi punk kind of things, they have to sound like that. You know, they, they can't sound like, drum samples they can't sound clean you know Mm -hmm. i have to reamp the whole mix through a fender twin i have to mix down onto cassette i have to send the whole mix into the into the kitchen you know and and record the kitchen chamber you know I, i have to mess things up so it sounds like their vibe monty valier here on the working class audio podcast it's time to 
take a pause here, take a coffee break, or sorry, sponsor break. I'm sitting here staring at my coffee. Sponsor break here with Audio Technica. They have a series that I mentioned in a previous show. It's basically, it's a, it's a series of videos by Charlie Waymeyer, who did a, a set of videos on basic recording techniques for Audio Technica. Now he's back doing basic audio techniques for video. If you're interested in getting involved in audio for video and you've never, you know, set foot on a commercial shoot or you've never used a shotgun mic or a lav mic, these are really super helpful just to kind of get you the basics of what you need to know. So head on over to audio-technica.com and you will see the link to Charlie's videos. And uh, yeah, you can learn some stuff about audio for video. So that's it. Let's get back into it with Monty Valier here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's talk finance for a bit. And what I mean by that is I'm curious what your relationship is with money, what your philosophy is with regards to money in your life and your business and audio and how those, how audio and money, how you make that work. Well, it's changed a bit. Things were a lot easier, I would say, 10 years ago when some bands and record labels still existed and there were budgets. And this is an old trope that you've probably heard from a lot of people you've interviewed that the budgets went away and and so you have to work harder for less. But I've always been lucky that I've had the the commercial side to kind of take up the slack Mm -hmm. of trying to pay all the bills with just working with bands, mostly because the level of bands I work with are, you know, they have maybe $5,000 to make a record. And you have to be really creative to make a, a record for $5,000, you know? You know, things are, things are rough now. I mean, my income's probably been cut in half in the last couple of years just because of all the other circumstances. The, the marketing department's kind of going more in-house and, and, you know, young people at ad agencies who write music on their laptop using you know, GarageBand and Apple Loops and things and corporate people saying, oh, that's good enough. You know, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's definitely a devaluation of music and it's, it's gotten to a point where it's worthless music, which is really unfortunate. So you have to, you know, find other ways to, you know, find services that you can provide. And I, I try to, to do it as a, a audio department. You know, I'm like a in-house audio department outsourced is how I market myself. Yeah, the, the, definitely the ad agencies, you know, I made a trip to an ad agency in San Francisco one time and was just shocked to see the, the, the studios inside. I can't yeah. remember who it was, but I walked in, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. There's, this is like, you could, they could do everything here. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And there's even uh, VO booths and things in most agencies now. And so it's hard for people who do, VO recording, people who do that kind of post stuff. It's been really rough for them. But um, I don't know. I, I don't know how else to say it, but um, it's a struggle. You know, it's a, it's a hustle. Mm-hmm. I go into hustle mode if uh, I'm looking at going, okay, well, I have a couple months worth of nut covered in the bank. I got to find something. And so then I start calling agency people I know and, and some producers I know and, and try to get some corporate stuff happening to fill up the coffers again. Do you ever uh, think about downsizing your studio situation with with a different set of tools and selling off some of the tools that you may or may not be using on a daily basis? I've thought a lot about that, and I think I probably have to assess that. I just did an inventory recently, and so I have a, a list of everything I have in here, and I probably need to purge 
some stuff. Um, but at the same time, I'm still doing a lot of work with the big tools I have, my console and tape machines and things. I'm mixing a record now with a guy mixed it somewhere else. And then he came here because he wanted to run it through the Trident. You know, he wanted to see what his songs would sound like doing a full analog mix through all the the tubes and and transformers and and mixing down onto quarter inch and i i keep getting work like that too so if i got rid of the console i'd be sad first of all <laughs> but I, i'm still using it you know okay but i am trying to think of a way to bring in another partner actually mm. somebody else because i don't i don't work at night you know so the studio's dark at 6 p.m you know, so if I could find somebody who I trusted, who who liked the gear here and and could learn all the quirks about it and could take nights, you know, that that could be a, a solution also. Mm -hmm. Bring down the overhead a little. This is always an awkward question for everybody. Are you saving for retirement? Yes. Yes. I have a 401k. Um, I also kind of feel like a lot of my gear might be sort of a retirement investment. I've heard a lot of people say that. <laughs> I mean, it's not a lot, but, you know, I mean, if you turned everything around, it's, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars probably worth of gear. But yeah, I, my wife also has a, a 401k and, and she has a, a pretty straight, cool job. And, and so if it wasn't for her, I would be in a different place for sure, because mm -hmm. we share expenses quite a bit. And um, as far as retiring, yeah, I mean, I'd love to find, you know, something new to do and just kind of go off and, and be retired. That'd be great. <laughs> Learn how to whittle know, or something. I don't know if I could ever quit. It, it, this, yeah. And I, and, I, and I question whether or not you could really quit. I think you would be pulled back into it. Yeah, it, it would just become more of a hobby, you know? Yeah. And I think that would be the, the retirement part of it. Instead of trying to chase money, it would just be mm -hmm. like, I'm just going to record these things because I like to. You know, um, and in terms of marketing yourself, what have you found that works? Word of mouth. Um, you make one record and you get five more records from that one, you know? Mm. So you, that's the, probably the thing that's worked the most for me is having one record that does okay in a genre where a bunch of other bands hear it and go, that's the sound we want. And then they hit me up. It happens all the time with weird records you'd never expect, you know, like, um, I mixed a artist called Sean Hayes mixed an album for him maybe five years ago. And because of that record, I got this mixing thing with the, this guy who from Norway, who won the Norwegian idol, <laughs> like super pop Norwegian guy. And they wanted a mix that sounded like the Sean Hayes record. And it's like, oh, they were listening to Sean Hayes in in Norway and looked on the back and saw my name and you know, so it's that kind of referral, you know, having your discography out there and having people like what you do and they contact you. Just back to marketing in the day and age that we live in with credits, not being in full view, do you find that that hampers that word of mouth aspect? Yeah, I think it, it does because a lot of records I've worked on are only on Bandcamp, you know, and so I, <laughs> I always have to kind of be vigilant and, and look on the Bandcamp page send them an email and say, hey, put my name on there, you know, put where you recorded it and follow up. I just had to do that yesterday or day before. And they, they're like, yeah, cool. Yeah, we forgot. Sorry, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, records aren't being really released as much anymore. And when people put out vinyl, maybe they sell 500 copies, 
And so a lot of those people aren't bands that are looking on the back. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I try to put stuff on my website, Facebook, those kind of things. When people release something, I try to make sure that they mention me or I'll comment on something and say, Hey, yeah, it was great working with you guys at my studio doing this. <laughs> yeah, Here I am mixing your record. Here's a picture of a microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Social media has really become like the de facto way that a lot of, a lot of recording professionals keep their names out there. Yeah. It feels, I don't know. It, it feels kind of sleazy sometimes that the only thing that you, it, for me, if, if the only thing I ever post is advertising myself you know it's like mm -hmm. here's my work again here's another record here's you know that kind of thing it feels kind of dorky sometimes i have a personal facebook page and i have a, a separate production page obviously i have a working class audio page for me it works to keep them separate yeah i've tried i mean i have a ruminator audio page but in the end everybody's knows me and it's my name and nobody really yeah. cares about the other thing and so i kind of have to do both ah uh. you know I, if I put stuff just on the Ruminator audio page, you know, I don't, I don't really go out and search for likes or anything like that. So like 90 people will see it, you know? <laughs> I should have asked you this earlier, but it's, it, it occurs to me, like when you said, you know, band has like $5,000 to make a record, how do you allocate that money? And how, how do you present the plan as it were to, to the band to say $5,000, is that going to get them, you know, a number of days or is that like a project rate and it's done when it's done? How do you manage working with a band uh, in that budget? It has a small budget. Um, well, um, I won't take on the job if they're not together. You know, I, I go to rehearsal and I talk to the band and I watch them pr play their songs and I look at their gear and I talk to them about, it's like pre-production, you know, I, I talk to them about rehearsing their songs without vocals, you know, and trying to save time in the studio in advance, uh, making sure that they have a spreadsheet with all the parts that they want to overdub on every song, you know, and so we can start to look at it and go, okay, well, this one's going to have glockenspiel, boys choir, and Celeste and finger symbols. And so we have to know like, okay, well, that's going to take an hour. That's going to take a half hour. That's going to take, you know, and I, so I can kind of gauge like how many hours the overdubs will take. And I know my room and I know how I work. So I know how long it takes to do basics. And then I, I watch the singer and I listen to the singer and try to figure out if they can sing mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and how long it's going to take for them to get takes. And so if it's going to be, you know, three hours per song and it's 10 songs, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's 30 hours just for vocals. And so it's it's like a time management before the whole thing happens. And if I don't think that they can pull it off or I can pull it off in the time, then it, it doesn't happen. You know, unless it's a, a band that I'm just like, I love these guys. I love their songs. I will make a sacrifice and throw in, you know, extra time on my own to make sure that it's a good record. You know? Yeah. And that happens when my other expenses are covered for the month already or something. But mostly I think that young bands that are making their first or second record and they're well rehearsed, I think they can work pretty fast. And I also have to temper their expectations. Well, here's the time you have. Here's the money you have. Here's how good you are. Here's what your equipment's like. Here's the experience you have. You're not going to make a million dollar sounding record with this. You're going to make a record that sounds like you guys right now at this time in your life. And this is the, the limitations. And so you have to temper your expectations that you're not going to be able to exceed these limitations, you know? And so that's a conversation I have before we start. I, I just did a, a band, great band, Double Skeleton. 
their the record turned out great. But when they when we first met, they were talking about wanting their record to sound, you know, like Smashing Pumpkins or something, like Siamese Dream. They easily spend a million dollars doing guitar overdub. <laughs> I mean, they, they spent a lot of money on that record and they spent a lot of time and they had like the best studio and the best everything and T-Boys and and it's like, well, you you can't. You, there's no way your record's going to sound like that. Well, I wouldn't want it to sound like that anyway, but it's just not, you're not going to get there. You know, you have to temper those expectations. I am always severely frustrated by that. You know, we really want our record to sound like this other record. Yeah. It's like, why? Why, why yeah. not have it be something unique and just be truly you? It's like... Yeah, yeah. That's always know. a struggle, too. I mean, it's helpful sometimes without having a lot of time and budget to have the band bring in, like, a list of inspiration tracks, you know? And they're like, well, we kind of want our record to sound like these five bands. And I have to, like, try to find some way to, like, blend all those ideas together and their own talents and yeah. try to come up with something. I mean, it's, it's good if they have something like they're a, a band that has lots of gated reverb on a snare or something. It's like, okay, that's kind of the drum sound that you like. We'll kind of go there, you know, and we'll kind of see little moments of those kind of bands sticking out in their production. But I mean, we never sound like what they want it to sound like, <laughs> you know, exactly. Cool, man. Thanks for doing this. Well, thank you, Matt. Thanks, Monty. See you later. There you have it, Monty Valier here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to thank Monty for taking the time to meet with us. And of course, it is that time where we are out of time. So let's thank everybody involved in doing all this. And we'll start with Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. Let's thank the sponsors, of course, Lawton Audio, Audio Technica, Vocal Monitors, Universal Audio, and Gearsluts.com. Hey, and thanks, everybody. I appreciate you listening. And as I always say, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>